Hello and welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I am super excited to have with me on Zoom, Adam Bezvenik. Adam is founder and managing partner of Looking Glass Capital, a pre-seed and seed stage focused venture fund. Adam, great to have you with me here today. Uh, how cold is it out there with you where you are? Uh, Arish, it's great to be here. It's great to be inside. Um, it's going down to about seven Fahrenheit tonight and I think two Fahrenheit tomorrow morning. So I'm going to get a lot of email done. Yeah, you're you're wrapped up and ready to go. I, I have to be honest, over here in the UK, we've suddenly uh, managed to get out of the cold snap we're in. Anyway, enough about the weather. That's a very British thing to talk about. Let's talk about <laughs> some more interesting stuff. So one of the first things I want to talk to you about uh, is uh, your time at Lowercase Capital. So for our listeners who may not know enough about you, uh, please do head over and check out our primer uh, where Adam goes through some of his background, what he's been doing and all about uh, looking glass and uh, the sort of businesses that they're investing in. Uh, but Adam, back in the day, you worked with Lowercase, which is Chris Saka's fund. Uh, you were involved in all sorts of things from projects with Twitter and Uber uh, and beyond. I'd really love to understand from you, was tech and investing something that you inherently knew you wanted to do? Because your background has really followed that path, um, you know, really from day one. So I'd love to understand, was that something that you knew right from an early age that, that you wanted to get into? Or did you fall into it? I would say I knew I wanted to be around founders uh, from a relatively early age. My, my dad is an entrepreneur. He is the founder of a company. It's not a tech company, but I saw him raise a little bit of outside capital for it from, from angel investors. I saw him grow it, the ups and downs that came with different periods and sort of the sector that he was, he was operating in. And, you know, something about working with founders is, you know, truly, and it sounds corny, but I think it's truly like inspirational to see someone go from zero to one, which is part of the most exciting part about investing at the stage that I do. And so I knew I wanted to be in and around entrepreneurship in some way, form or fashion. Um, I didn't know whether that was going to be as a founder myself or whether that was going to be as an investor and supporter or advisor to entrepreneurs. Um, but I knew I wanted to be around, around people starting things. Um, I had a finance job after school, sort of a stereotypical investment banking analyst gig. I knew that I didn't love mature companies. I knew I didn't love like working in Excel nonstop, not just the hours, but sort of, you know, the tedium of evaluating late stage and, and mature businesses, which is not something that really got me that excited. And so I think naturally sort of this desire to be in around founders and liking evaluating companies, but not sort of the minutia of just living inside an Excel spreadsheet sort of naturally pushed me towards early stage venture. And I think like a lot of people who think they want to do VC, they probably only know about like 6% of what VC actually entails. And now having been in venture for full-time for almost a decade, I am self-aware enough to admit, I really didn't know all that much about, <laughs> about what I was, what I was doing or what I thought I would be doing. Um, but I was also self-aware enough to, I think, approach the process of trying to break into venture in a very like earnest way. I, cold emailed literally hundreds of VCs. I was active on Twitter. I was trying to write blog posts. I was trying to sort of do everything I possibly could to put myself, put myself out there. And Chris is just one of the investors that I happened to email and, and tweet with. He's one of the people that happened to respond to my email. And then he was, you know, patient enough with me to 
cave and give me some work to do when I was getting my MBA um, and really allowed me to learn a lot um, really through osmosis. Um, just seeing how he worked with founders, seeing how he worked with portfolio companies. And um, I sort of got the bug from, you know, it doesn't hurt that I was around the most successful pre-seed or seed venture fund of all time to catch that bug. Um, but, uh, but learned obviously a lot from him and it certainly shaped the way that I think about interacting with founders and, and building this firm. Amazing. I think, I think that really resonates because I mean, you said something that you didn't know, you know, that much about venture when you got into it. I think a lot of people could argue that a lot of VCs didn't know much about venture over the last decade, because some of the stuff that we've been <laughs> investing in has definitely not been uh, the right kind of deal. Um, but actually, uh, you know, all joking aside, I think, obviously learning from someone like Chris Saka is absolutely amazing, but equally you went into projects with companies like Twitter and Uber, like relatively early on in their uh, life cycle. So just give us a bit of a, an understanding of what that was like. And, and did that bring you closer to that kind of founder entrepreneurial, uh, you know, uh, activity that you were looking for? Because, you know, those are obviously incredible businesses uh, that are household names uh, today. Uh, and and I, I just love to get that kind of insight as, as an intern MBA, being dropped into these like massive tech companies or like super scaling tech companies, how, how that was and how that impacted you. Yeah. I mean, the project with Twitter was the first thing I ever did with Chris and he basically told me, um, I'm not going to interview you. I'm not going to like reference check you. I've read your tweets. I've read your blog posts. I've seen how you've interacted with me. And I think you could be helpful to this project that Twitter has. Um, which was they were evaluating a, a buy versus build scenario in terms of like an M and A transaction, and this is fall of 2011. So Twitter was not quite Twitter yet, but it was it was getting there. And um, I worked really closely with Adam Bain, who had been recently hired at Twitter. I think he was there for less than a year at this point to run sales. So they were just trying to figure out how to monetize, and the project was deciding whether. They should buy a company called Summify, which ended up ended up buying, which became their email digest product essentially. And they folded this project in, which would this product in, which would summarize you know all of the tweets you missed based on people you follow or categories you're interested in, whether they were sports or news. And I built a model to look at how could they how could Twitter monetize email, right? Could they put in promoted tweets or ads or promoted follows into email digests that they would send users as a way of engaging with them? or re-engaging lapsed users to come back to Twitter and, and go back to the feed. And I think one, I mean, one of the most important parts of that project was actually like the relationships that I built at Twitter because of working with Chris. So like, I literally had a call with Adam Bain two days ago to send him a company that I invested in at Deep Fork that's raising a Series C right now because it could be a fit for, for his firm now. So this is a relationship that was, you know, a decade, you know, a dozen years in the making. And so I think to me, like what was most important about working with Chris in some ways, obviously was being around these great companies and seeing, you know, what, you know, what worked for them and how I could draw on that to potentially help founders that I would eventually work with or invest in. But almost more importantly was the relationships and the access that working with Chris gave me, because those are now relationships that I've been able to, you know, nurture and foster and carry on, you know, and now they're, they're my own relationships, um, having been sort of in the space now for a decade. It's, uh, it's always something that 
you know, I think about quite deeply, the, the VC ecosystem is just that. It's an ecosystem, right? And it's built on relationships. It's built on those sort of um, relationships that would have been forged either by founders and their employees and their teams who then go out and, you know, uh, build their own businesses or raise funds or go and work for VCs, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I think one of the important things is whilst those relationships are, are hugely important for the ecosystem, we've got to be really conscious about making sure that they're also accessible, right? Because lots of people don't have the privilege or the ability, I guess, to break into those relationships uh, in the same way that you have, uh, or maybe I would have had. Uh, it'd be interesting, how, how would you kind of suggest to people uh, that they might sort of approach that? Like if they're, if they're trying to find their way into those relationships, you know, either as a founder or someone that w wants to work in VC, like how would you recommend they do that if they don't have, you know, the ability to work with, a firm like lowercase sure i mean i think candidly like i i didn't have the ability to work <laughs> with a firm like lowercase um sort of on the surface like chris wasn't hiring an intern like i just cold emailed him and literally probably 200 other venture investors um over the course of a you know several months to year period and through sheer force of will like got coffee with a lot of them did Skype calls back when Skype was a thing with some of them, um, you know, phone calls with them. I mean, Chris, I actually just sent him a list of questions over email and he responded asynchronously over email to start because that's what his like schedule allowed at the time. And so many of those people are now investors in Looking Glass Fund 1 and Fund 2. Some of these people I've co-invested with, some of these people that ignored my email have now become friends. They didn't realize that I was emailing them. They just, you know, a lot of people... Don't read every email that they get because they're inundated. Um, and so I think I was also fortunate enough that 2011, like venture wasn't like a cool thing to do yeah. yet. Um, the move from finance to venture was not an obvious one at all, or finance to tech was not an obvious one in 2011. Probably wasn't until like 2013, 2014 that it became sort of the, like a very natural path for someone to go from like two years as an analyst to going working at like Facebook or Google. Mm. Um, and so I tell people all the time that are, you know, 10 plus years younger than me that I also got really lucky that I was investing at, or I was trying to break into the space at a time where like there was a lot less noise and known VCs were super active on Twitter and they were much more accessible. Um, now I think the path that I went could certainly work, but it's kind of lazy. Like what I've seen a lot of people do is they've built, you know, I mean, they're technical, they've built products, they've launched stuff on product hunt as like side hustles, and it's gotten people's attention. You have people that launch Substacks and they're incredible analysts of companies and products. And you know, it's similar to the blog that I was running on Tumblr back in the so day. Folk like Packy, who I think you you co-invest with, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I've known Packy since I was 14 years old, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We went to rival high schools and we went to college together. Um, and so yeah, Packy, I mean, Packy sort of went the the route of banking startup and then he just started writing and obviously he's built an incredible following and he has a he has multiple funds and he's has a gig at you know Andreessen as a you know advisor on their crypto side and that's literally just from from writing and building a following essentially from scratch and so um you know tools like twitter and substack and medium have enabled even you know even people who have built up incredible things on tiktok have done um you know have really opened up the ability for people to put their thoughts out there and be known and heard. I mean, Turner Novak, who runs Banana Capital, another solo GP, like Turner 
was it like a work? I think he worked at like a pension or an endowment as an LP, but he wanted to break into venture and he would write, you know, write up these sort of uh, like hypothetical, like startup portfolios. Like these are the companies that I would invest in if I had a fund. And he would track that portfolio progress over time as those companies raised rounds of capital and ended up working out of four ventures with my friend Garov for a little bit. And then he ended up starting his own fund. And like, that was someone, and you know, Turner lives in Michigan. He's not living in a hotbed of, of venture activity. And so um, I think there's opportunity now for platforms that have made people's voices heard a lot more easily. And I think the ability to you know, get attention is a lot, in some ways it's a lot easier because the known entities, a lot of the known VCs have, are, have become a lot more quiet. They're not as active on Twitter. They're not publishing as much on Substack. And so it's actually opened up this, you know, this space for a lot of emerging voices and emerging thought, you know, leadership to, to come to the fore in a way that I think wasn't actually like that available, you know, eight to 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's, you know, be it podcasts, be it Twitter spaces, be it syndicates, obviously that are, that, that are really now easy to kind of spin up, uh, and, and get going. We've had like the founders of, uh, Vauban, uh, which was acquired by Carter. Uh, we've had the founder of, uh, Odin here in the UK, which again is another sort of SV, uh, SPV, um, uh, formation, uh, venture. And, you know, we're seeing more and more of that, certainly here in the UK, where solo kind of GPs are starting out really just by by raising these syndicates. And, you know, over time, if they then decide they want to uh, launch a fund, they launch a fund. But actually, to some extent, a lot of them like quite like the, the ability to just kind of launch an SPV and do it on a rolling basis rather than having to go out and actually raise yeah. a, a fully fledged fund. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, obviously, we've had here in the UK examples like Harry Stebbings, who off the back of his podcast was able to of course. to raise an amazing fund. Um, and, and uh, you know, and and others like, you know, we mentioned Packy McCormick, uh, Paige Finn Doherty, like, you know, who's also been on the pod. Like there, there's been a lot of people that I think have leveraged that social presence you know, at, at uh, you know, from backgrounds or ages where where it wouldn't have necessarily been the most obvious thing to do to raise a fund and been able to go out and progress to, towards that. So I think that's yeah, I think that's super. I think that's super useful. Uh, and it's interesting that you said it wasn't a cool thing to do back then. And and uh, kind of you know, I, I was reading. In fact, you know, you're talking about Twitter earlier. I was reading something that you said uh, just yesterday. I think right. And you said the best part of the current venture funding market is that it has provided a tremendous amount of clarity. So. I think for our UK listeners, it'd be really cool to understand what is the current state of play in the venture kind of ecosystem, certainly in the US, and and how you might see that uh, kind of globally, if 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 at all. And you know, what is that clarity that has been brought, and and what are the implications of that? Sure. So I think just quickly on where I think the current market sits, the, I think the pre-seed and seed market is still. Know, as robust and as as crowded as ever. Um, I think you've also started to see some later stage firms downshift to write more seed checks um, because they can get close to the same amount of ownership as a Series A investment with putting a lot less capital at risk. And so you've started to see some inflated seed rounds. I saw one person, another solo GP yesterday, tweet that she hadn't seen a seed round under $7 million in the last you know several weeks, which... Uh, that that seems like a lot of money for a seed, but perhaps these rounds are just getting inflated because you have you know an influx of later stage capital coming in to jam yeah. sort of jam things in. Um, 
but that market has not, in my opinion, hasn't really gotten much more quiet um, compared to some of the other later stages over the last you know six, eight, ten months. Um, what I have found at that stage, though, is at least for me, I'm seeing a much higher um, signal to noise ratio. And by that, I mean the quality of companies related to the quantity is is much better. I just think the bar for starting a company right now is exceptionally high. Um, and if you were a fly-by-night founder or you were going to you know, see if you could raise a little bit of money and then quit your job based on VCs funding your idea or your side hustle, um, like that just doesn't really happen right now the way it did in 2021. And so um, I'm seeing a lot more ideas and products pressure tested by founders before they actually go out to raise capital, which is, you know, which is refreshing to me and, you know, ultimately beneficial for investors to have something that feels even just a touch de-risked compared to something that's, you know, literally just an idea. Um, though certainly I still will fund those two for the right, the right team and the right market. Um, I think series A rounds are getting done, but you need to be an exceptionally strong company and exceptionally strong team to get those rounds done at valuations that um, you and your existing investors are are happy with. Um, and then series B and series C rounds, I think are probably the most tricky right now. Yeah. Sort of that growth stage deal where you, know, you probably raised an overinflated series A or series B in 21 or you know maybe early 22. Now you're in market and no one is willing to pay the price that you raised the last round at let alone an up round because the last two rounds were probably over overvalued significantly. And then the later stage stuff, you know, those companies might be taking down rounds, but like there's still going to be a, you know, quote unquote flight to quality yeah. to, to winners or perceived winners. Very similar to what we saw at the beginning of COVID um, where, you know, pre-seed and seed still remained relatively active because people were comfortable deploying small checks over Zoom and it, it felt, you know, a lot less risky. And then series A through C was basically like a no man's land. It was calling and then jail. series D and later just got, you know, flooded with capital, right? Because people were like, well, I can, it's, it's less about a person bet at this stage. I can just, I can, I probably have been tracking this company for a while already. I probably already have a relationship with the entrepreneur and let me just look at the latest numbers and I'm just running stuff in Excel and getting comfort with that. And so I don't necessarily need to see this person face to face. Um, I think that, that dynamic has emerged for different reasons now. Um, but, but I think that's a similar sort of barbell dynamic that we're seeing in the market, similar to sort of March, April, May of, of 2020. And I think that's really interesting. And you're the first person I've heard talk about it in terms of what we saw in 2020, but actually that that's exactly what we saw in 2020, as you, as you cor correctly point out, like it was, you know, I think there were, there, there were ideas that weren't getting funded. There were decent pre-seed businesses, which had legs, which, you know, were lower risk and therefore could get funded. But it was that, it was that mid range of seed series A where like, you know, product market fit was maybe there, maybe just about there, but hard to take that hard bet and deploy a large amount of capital, obviously post that you've got you know much more me metric you know m many more metrics or traction to uh to hang your hat on so I, I think that made life a lot easier so yeah that's a that's a very very interesting sort of juxtaposition i'd also be interested to understand from your perspective do you think we've reverted to where we were back in 2011 2012 13 when you were with lowercase uh as compared to the last 10 years like is that is that the 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 right sort of uh, analysis or or is this a new era altogether and we just got to treat it you know as a completely different um 
a, a different time. I think from a valuation perspective, I think we're retreating closer to 2014 through 2016, mm-hmm. which is when I was at Deep Fork. Um, Fred Wilson put out a post shortly after the start of the year where he said surviving in 2023 is thriving. And he called out new sort of valuation ranges for pre-seed, seed, A, and 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 B, I think. Yeah. And and I think Fred called out like 2015 as sort of the the analog to what when these types of deals would get done. I still see things that are out of, you know, slightly above that in terms of price at the pre-seed and seed stage, but I largely think we've reverted back to some time around there where, you know, raising a million dollar pre-seed round is getting done at, you know, four to six post, right? You're giving up somewhere between 16 and 25% of the company for a million dollars. A $3 million seed round is probably at somewhere between, you know, 10 to 15 post, Mm. um, you know, four million. You know, I, I fortunately I've had a lot of companies from Fund One. I've had seven companies from Fund One raise priced equity rounds in the last four months. Um, one was uh, a company called Hone, which I mentioned in the primer, which is doing very, very well and is well beyond that. Well beyond that from a seed or seed range. But the other six were all raising between three and five million dollars, and they're all largely giving up somewhere between eighteen and twenty five percent dilution. Wow. Yeah. So they're all raising somewhere between, you know, four, 15 to 20 million post post money valuations for three to $5 million rounds. Um, and some of these businesses are only a couple months old, but there's tons of momentum around them. Some of these businesses are 15 months old and they've just hit a, you know, an inflection point. Um, but largely I think this is a, that's a valuation range and a dilution range that we saw, you know, certainly pre COVID, and probably closer to the 2016, 2017 range, mm. uh, from a timing, from a timing perspective. Yeah. Um, I, I think that everyone's saying this is the new, new normal. This is, this is normal. Yeah. Right. 2021, you know, the back part of 20 through, you know, basically November, December through all of 21, essentially that was not normal. Um, that was just, was that, a, that was, know, that was just people, I think coming out of lockdown and just, too much exuberance, too much sort cool. of, uh, you know, just, Hey, we, we, we just going to get out there and, and start deploying again. I think there was just this like this almost celebratory kind of atmosphere that was going around and, and the party rounds were being done and lots of FOMO, all this sort of stuff. Uh, exactly. As you said, I think 20, 2020, back into 2020, 2021 were like completely outliers, you know, in, in the last sort of five, 10 years. Right. I think it's, you know, whether it's a combination of, you know, zero interest rate phenomenon mm. or too much, which is also a function of too much LP capital in the market and GPs need to deploy it or thinking they need to deploy it quickly so they can go back and raise, you know, subsequent larger funds. I think the public markets sort of anointing, you know, Uber and Airbnb and DoorDash and Coinbase and others as $100 billion companies you know, certainly gave people the idea that, all right, well, a hundred billion is the new sort of unicorn. A billion dollars is not a unicorn anymore. When in reality, probably like somewhere between five and 10 billion is like, is the new unicorn. But when you're underwriting something to 10 to 20 X higher than that, you can afford, you think you can afford to pay 10 to 20 X higher at entry. And so entry prices just skyrocketed because people correlated those to much higher 
exit possibilities. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Well, look, I mean, I'm very much glad that we're kind of out of the euphoria. I think, you know, getting back to fundamentals is never a bad thing. So let's actually talk a little bit about looking glass now. I just want to touch on a couple of things. So, you know, we just talked about the challenges for uh, or the new or the, the, the normal new normal, if, if you like, uh, within venture financing. How's that been from an LP perspective? So you're raising fund two, you raised fund one in 2019-20, as you mentioned, right through COVID. What have been the challenges raising today versus two, three years ago? And the biggest challenge two or three years ago was, you know, you're a fund one, you don't, you know, as much as I felt like I, you know, had built a, a very credible track record as a G, as a, you know, as an investor and, and partner at other firms, ultimately you're still under someone else's shingle, mm. regardless of whether that firm is known or not. There's always the benefit of having, you know, resources, partners, capital, et cetera, that, um, you know, that is not your own. And so ultimately, I think a lot of people are wary of any first time, you know, fund manager going out solo. And so that was certainly something I had to combat. I, my first conversations around fund one were in January of 2020. COVID and lockdown happened, you know, mid-March. I, I joke that I started fundraising in January. I stopped fundraising in March and I started fundraising again in June. Um, and so like that ultimately was just, it was really hard. You know, there's no getting around it, but I think, and people weren't really willing to write checks over zoom into new managers and blind pools. Like, like there's just a lot working against you. Um, I think the challenges now are, are very different. Like fund one like I mentioned is like really inflecting and doing quite well from a markups perspective. Um, I think the challenge now is, um, you know, our LPs sitting on their hands because they're a little bit wary of the market. Did they deploy way too aggressively in 2022? Do they are they budgeting for investors coming back that they already have relationships in 23 and so they have to you know set aside capital for existing manager manager relationships that they have so you know, that's always going to be a, a struggle but i think the the overhang of potential recession or you know markdowns or you know later stage capital being completely sort of like you know just that that powder is totally wet like i think there's a sort of a lot of um, a lot of variables that are keeping people sort of at bay. I think the way that I've described it though is like kind of the longer it takes me to raise fund two, the easier it gets to raise fund two. So, you know, like I said, I've had a bunch of markups in the last four months. Four months ago, a lot of people told me they wanted to see more progress. Well, <laughs> now there's a lot more. Now yeah. there's more progress, and now there's actually a lot more interest around fund two. Um, so. I really describe it as like, I'm running up this like very steep hill and at a certain point, I'm going to get to the top of this hill and I'm going to be running downhill with this fundraise. And I think I'm approaching that like precipice right now um, as fund one matures. And then it also doesn't hurt that, you know, there's companies in fund two now. So people have an idea of like what they're investing in. It's not a blind pool. The first investment from fund one already or from fund two already has been marked up. So people feel like there's getting, there's like, a little bit of a bonus there when they come into fund two. So these types of things will help the the raise go a lot more smoothly, but certainly the, the broader economic climate right now, I think is the, is certainly the most, the most challenging, challenging yeah. piece. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think I, the other, the only thing I'd kind of add to that is I think, uh, you know, now we're in sort of 
February of 2023 already. Uh, I think there was a massive pullback at the back end of last year. I think there was a lot of fear in the market. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of, you know, I think LPs were definitely sitting on their hands then because, you know, they just simply couldn't see, you know, a path forward. I think things have started becoming clearer, both in terms of, you know, how deep, if at all, a recession is going to be in the US. And it feels like it's it's not going to be anywhere near as bad as was anticipated uh, it looks like rate hikes won't be as high as anticipated etc cetera, etc cetera. uh so so i think that kind of slight you know that that additional certainty if i can put it that way is starting to loosen the purse strings if i if i'm reading the situation correctly i don't think it's going to be you know, i don't think it's going to be open uh, season and i think there's definitely you know there's still challenges there but uh it, it definitely feels like people are starting to kind of get back out there uh, from an lp perspective um and i think the other massive benefit and you alluded to this obviously because you know you raised during COVID is in person is back like you know these large lpgp events are happening uh you know family office events are happening and and that just means the ability for fund managers like yourself and others to get out there and actually kind of you know uh, speak to people meet people meet people you wouldn't have otherwise met like has has improved massively exactly and i i tweeted about this a few weeks ago um i said sort of the long and short was like you need to go out and meet people in person to fundraise now um and it was it's funny. I had a couple founders in my portfolio see that tweet, and they thought I was subtweeting them, and so they got on planes for their raises right now, Amazing. and and a couple of them were successful in, in running those processes. But really, I told one it was more sort of meant to be a kick in the ass to myself to go out there. Um, so I've I've trips to Toronto, Chapel Hill, South Florida, and Austin all in the next four weeks um for lp meetings and those are it's entirely because to your point like things are open now you need to be meeting in person these are decade hopefully multi-decade you know relationships that need to be forged by spending time with people you know having lunch having a meal with them um and it's you know it's a requirement yeah no for sure And, and look i love i love the fact that you subtweeted yourself and managed to galvanize other people uh, because of their own uh, their own sort of FOMO as well. Um, so look, just as we sort of wrap up, I want to talk again about Looking Glass and and your thematic thesis, so health, climate, empowerment. So nothing ventured for me. You know, I, I launched this podcast uh, a little bit because I wanted to explore the venture ecosystem, but also because. Um, you know, I think there there are voices that we don't hear enough of with, from from within the venture ecosystem, and I love the the fact that you are focused on health, climate, and empowerment because all of those three speak to me as frontier sort of uh, areas where so much has to be done, and lo- there are large swathes of the population that are underserved. So I'd love to understand from you about your thoughts about how you believe that those three, uh, you know, those three themes are going to create positive impact and and why it was that you ultimately chose, you know, to focus on those areas. Because it, it's not as if you had a, you know, a background in health or a background in, in climate or anything per se, uh, as we discussed, you know, the majority of your, your time has been spent within, within you know, various uh, uh, aspects of, of VC and certainly finance in general. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to get, uh, you know, a bit of an understanding from you on, on, on all of that. Sure. So, when I was sitting down to think about what I wanted to spend time on with this firm, I knew I didn't want to be a generalist for a lot of reasons. I, as a single GP investing at the pre-seed stage, I think if you're a generalist, like unless you're first round capital, right? You're, you're not top of mind for anybody. Um, 
And so I wanted to invest specifically in categories that I felt like I had a track record in. So when I looked at what I had invested in at, at Deep Fork and Anchorage and as an angel, I could you know, relatively easily bucket a significant percentage of my investments into these categories. I had made climate investments at, at Deep Fork and Anchorage, like in companies like One Concern and Plant Prefab. I had made a number of healthcare and health-related investments, um, including a company like Carrot in the smoking cessation space when I was at Anchorage. And this notion of empowerment for me, I I wanted to put a little bit more definition around what that means. And so I, I've called out a few categories, um, education, tools and platforms specifically serving small and medium-sized businesses, and then products that enable access, uh, identity, or self-expression in some way. And so when I sort of took the totality of my investing career prior to starting Looking Glass, more than half of my investments at at Deep Fork, all of my investments at Anchorage and all of my angel investments fell into these, you know, one of these three buckets. Um, I also felt like these categories were very complementary. So to your point around empowerment and, and access, like access oftentimes aligns with, with education. It oftentimes aligns with healthcare, particularly around, you know, underserved populations, you know, around mental health, women's health. Um, also oftentimes can align with, um, you know, with consumer finance and fintech. Um, which can fall into this empowerment bucket and even some small business sort of tools and marketplaces. And so for me, it was, while these are three sort of like distinct categories, I tag every deal that I look at um, and a significant percentage of them um, have multiple tags mm -hmm. because they align with one or two of these, of these themes. And then, you know, sort of as a, as an investor who was trying to tell a story to, to LPs, like, and also think about why these categories mattered. I felt like they attracted founders who were authentic and genuine. And I describe it as mission driven. And it's not necessarily a social mission, though certainly to your point, a lot of these do have some, you know, a social impact element to them, but it's it's far from a requirement. But they attract founders that are building companies for the right reason. If you're building a company in healthcare, climate, education, even some of the stuff around small business, like these are very fraught areas, oftentimes like regulatorily complex, oftentimes like filled with, you know, legacy players and incumbents who are disincentivized from adopting your software or any software at all. And so they're really not for the faint of heart and they attract a founder that probably knows the space totally cold or has like an obsessive reason for why they need and deep, like deeply personal reason for why they want to solve a problem in these categories. And so I think they attract a naturally more resilient entrepreneur than some other categories do. You can't be um, a tourist founder getting into like getting into climate or health for sure. Uh, yeah. Not, yeah, not, not really. I think it's, you would quite quickly realize or wonder why you quit your you know well-paying job at Facebook to go build something in climate when you weren't obsessed with like mitigating, you know, climate change. Um, and then also I think these categories are more recession resilient and economically resilient True. than a lot of others. So the New York Times actually put out an article a couple of days ago about climate tech being recession resilient. Um, and they quoted Josh Felzer, who's a, a VC that I got to know, who's started, left Freestyle and started Climactic. And they started, they quoted Rick Zulo, who's a sort of another GP emerging manager who runs Equal Ventures with Rich Kirby in New York, um, who I've been friends with for a long time. And they you know, cite a bunch of their investments in the climate space that have been able to be successful despite sort of what the, the broader market looks like. Um, and when you look at sort of the companies in, in my fund that have had the most fundraising success over the last 
six to eight months, they've been healthcare companies, climate companies, and an education company. Mm. And so I think when companies are solving sort of a need, facilitating a need and not a want, they're solving like a must, you know, it's a, it's a must solve issue. It's a pain killer versus vitamin, attract. right? Yeah, pain, exactly. Pain, yeah. pain killer over vitamin. Like you're going to naturally attract capital and talent, frankly, as people are drawn to solving, you know, problems that they feel like really matter to them. Um, when maybe there's other categories that just don't, don't track the same level of capital and talent during, during downturns. Amazing. Adam, look, it's been incredible talking to you and understanding more about your background, about what you're doing at Looking Glass. For our listeners, if they're looking for you, where can they find you? Are you online? Are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? Where's the best place to come um, look for you? I'm way, I'm way too online. I'm way too much on Twitter. Uh, it's at Bezvinik, B-E-S-V-I-N-I-C-K on Twitter. And uh, the Looking Glass website is lookingglass.vc. Amazing. Adam, well, I hope you are wrapped up well against the, the cold. And uh, thank you so much for joining me here today. Awesome. Thanks, Arish. Really appreciate it.